0: Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. Hi all, the following is part two of a two part tale. I do recommend going listening to part one first if you haven't. A link in the liner notes. And if you're here having listened to part one, welcome back. Let's jump into it. Today, folks, if I can, I would like to resume this tale by doing something totally irresponsible. Before we come back to Major General Smedley Butler, I want to take us on a digression which probably has no great bearing on or relation to our story. Today, we pick up the tale on a hot, balmy night in Miami, Florida. The time, 9.35 p.m., february 15th 1933. in bayfront park that night a man stood up in his open top car and gave an impromptu speech to an enraptured crowd as he concluded stating this was his first time in miami in seven years but it would not be his last visit it almost became just that the sound of six gunshots peeled through the air to the shock of all in attendance In the crowd that night, an unemployed 32-year-old bricklayer named Giuseppe Joe Zangara. I imagine Joe looking rather flustered, having worked his way frantically through the crowd for a single good vantage point, but that's only my imagination at work. At only five feet one inches tall, Zangara had to perch atop a bench, steadying himself against a Mrs. Lillian cross, 5'4", herself, standing in front of him. He leant over Mrs. Cross's right shoulder, aimed his thirty-two caliber pistol and pulled the trigger, yelling, too many people are starving. Joe Zangara may have succeeded in his assassination attempt, but for the sole fact that Mrs. Cross was all kinds of fierce. Despite the first bullet passing so close to her, it burned the side of her face. She spun around and wrestled with Zangara for the gun. This caused the remaining shots to veer off wildly. Five people on or near the car were struck by bullets, including Mayor of Chicago Anton Cermak. Cermak would die days later, with a bullet still sitting in his lung. Lillian got the better of Zangara, the furious crowd then piling in on him. The crowd were ready to tear him, limb from limb, were it not for the Speaker, President-elect Franklin Roosevelt, calling for the man to be handed to the police, to be dealt with through legal avenues. The authorities did deal with Giuseppe Zangara. He was very soon up before the courts and sentenced to 80 years in prison. When Mayor Sermak passed, a subsequent murder charge was added. He was recharged and found guilty of murder, spending just 10 days on death row before he was executed on March 20th, 1933. Now when I first heard this tale some 20 years ago, maybe longer, the teller and third Zangara was a stooge, a patsy, some unknowing schlub doing the dirty work of a cadre of shadowy elites. Subsequently, I've heard others state that he was from Calabria, Italy. Well, that is true, close to Sicily. So therefore, he must have been a mafia tough or possibly an anarchist. Now, as far as anyone can gather, Zangara was none of those things. He was an angry, frustrated, and extremely unstable guy. Sick and tired of struggling by on whatever work he could secure. His meagre savings had waned in the Depression. And the guy, like many people, were doing it really hard. One accepted factor contributing to his actions. From the age of six, he'd been in near constant agony from adhesions on his gallbladder. He lived the majority of his life suffering from crippling stomach pains. Joe Zangara was not a man who valued his own continued existence terribly highly when he tried to kill FDR. Now we can safely assume Jerry Maguire and none of his backers ever went to Zangara to take care of their gold standard problem. Although I wonder what General Butler would have made of this incident with just a few months' hindsight. When we last saw Major General Butler, he'd met with Robert S. Clark, former soldier, multi-millionaire banker, and heir to a sewing machine fortune. Clark attempted to bribe the general for his support by offering to pay his mortgage off for him. Clark was willing to spend half his fortune to stop Roosevelt. Butler took this all very badly, and he threw Clark out of his house. But not before Clark made a call to his guy, Gerald Maguire, to tell him to go with Plan B. Plan B was to flood the American Legion, a prominent veterans group with telegraphs demanding the leadership call for a return to the gold standard. And this subsequently did happen. And at this point, Smedley Butler could well have expected the bankers would have moved on and gone look for some other ex-general to do their bidding. To his surprise, Gerald Maguire kept showing up to his public speeches. He showed up in Boston and offered to throw a banquet in Butler's honour. He would pay him $1,000 to attend, and of course make a pro-gold standard speech. Butler declined. In October, he was preparing for a trip to Brooklyn, to deliver a speech in support of a former Marine running for political office. This speech was completely unannounced to the public, but McGuire somehow knew all about it. Days prior, he dropped in on Butler, asking if he could tag along with him. Butler told him no. Maguire then made an offer to pay Butler $750 every time he just mentioned the gold standard in a positive way. Never spooked the general. How did Maguire even know about this engagement? Did he really have eyes and ears everywhere? It started to dawn on Butler this group may actually be extremely dangerous. For the first time, he really felt like he should report them to someone. But he also knew he didn't have yet enough information about this scheme to do so. If he went to authorities now, he'd come off looking like a lunatic. As 1933 wrapped, big business were increasingly vocal in their hatred for President Roosevelt. Several moguls and a growing number of editorialists in mainstream newspapers began asking a question. Was FDR a secret communist? They increasingly painted a picture of a creeping socialism, their new buzzword. A stripping of Americanism by stealth. Roosevelt wasn't there to save us from ruin. He was in the White House to kill the American dream and capitalism itself. In November, they collectively pearl-clutched as Roosevelt recognized the USSR as a legitimate confederation of states. When he announced no more American soldiers would be sent to South or Central America as muscle men for big business, the moguls and the business papers were livid. And what's more, FDR's recovery was slow and methodical. Now that Mussolini chap, he appeared to be working wonders at lightning speed. Unions? Forget about it. The man even reputedly had the trains running on time course this was all done with the subtlety of a guy who runs over a child at 70 miles per hour then doesn't even stop to check on them. Hitler had been in power since January and was increasingly of interest to certain moguls. A wave of fascist organizations were taking over Europe at the time. Portugal in 1933, Austria and Bulgaria in 1934. Yugoslavia in 35, Greece in 36, Spain just prior to the Second World War. And this is not mentioning the many nascent movements the fascists supported into power later, from Slovakia to Vichy France, Romania to Norway. This flurry of action made this deplorable worldview seem fresh and exciting to many a Wall Street banker or industrial titan. Many wondered what it would be like having their own authoritarian strongman in the White House. But on the upside, at least, Maguire suddenly disappeared. Butler found he was sent off on an all-expenses-paid mission to Europe, all paid for by the shadowy cabal. He first learned of this when he received a postcard from the Riviera in early 1934. Maguire was in Berlin when he sent a second postcard in June. In July 1934, Fortune magazine, a favorite read of the rich, added further evidence of the mood of the boardroom. They spent an entire issue, in excess of 120 pages, effusively praising Mussolini and Italian fascism. Maguire returned in August, dropping by Butler's on the 22nd. He told the general he was sent to investigate the role of former soldiers in the fascist movement, and specifically their role in the formation of dictatorships. Maguire wasn't crazy for Mussolini or Hitler, but he was quite taken by the Croix de Feu in France. On 6 February 1934, France's left wing government came under attack, quite literally from a confederation of far-right groups. Now, as a much-needed aside, Maguire appears in the telling quite impressed by the Croix de Feu's role in the downfall of that government. But I need to add a little bit of context outside of his telling. The French government were under heavy financial pressure and in the process of enacting austerity measures. Some of this is in relation to American business interests calling in overseas debt following the stock market crash. The final straw, though, was a series of financial scandals involving corrupt people with ties to politicians. And the final, final straw was the Stavisky affair. Alexandra Stravisky was a conman and pawn shop owner who was on the run from the authorities after getting caught selling counterfeit bonds and borrowing large sums of money against a collection of glass trinkets. He claimed the costume jewellery were real emeralds, formerly owned by the Empress of Germany. Just prior to February 6th, Stavisky showed up dead from an alleged self-inflicted gunshot wound. Others claim rightly, I believe, the forensic evidence suggested it wasn't self-inflicted at all, unless Stavisky had arms long enough to drag across the floor as he walked. They pointed the finger at the gendarmes who had found the body. As with similar cases, such as Jeffrey Epstein, it was revealed the fraudster had powerful friends. One friend, Prime Minister Camille Schautemps, was even said to have protected him. The anti-Semitic far-right were particularly livid that Stavisky was Jewish. The Croix de Feu were a coalition of military veterans led by a Colonel Francois de la Roque. They were anti-Semitic and right-wing and staunchly pro-business. And they looked much like fascists or Nazis. On the other hand, they did support a woman's right to vote. And they were all for the establishment of a minimum wage. And they were also wary of the Germans in general and Hitler in particular. Historians have long argued whether they qualify as fascists, but they were certainly a hateful far-right group. Now, Maguire talks about their actions on February 6th, but it was actually their inaction that made them of interest. While other groups attempted on February 6th, 1934, what similar groups tried in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, 2021, De La Roque ordered his group to stay out of the attempted putsch. They peacefully protested in the south of Paris. The other groups failed in their coup without their considerable muscle to back them. Soon after, however, feeling intense pressure from the public, Chautemps' government resigned in disgrace. The croix de Feu, having not disgraced themselves on February 6th, ended up in a position of influence over the right-wing government who followed, although they had burned bridges among the far right in doing so. Maguire's interpretation of the incident is somewhat different to mine. We saw their role as far more active. Now back to the narrative. Maguire stated his organization wanted to build something similar in America, a super-organization of former soldiers that they could use to seize power. Butler responded, if they did such a thing, he'd gather his own army together to fight them. Maguire countered he had no plans to physically depose Roosevelt. They planned to convince him he needed to hire an assistant president, a Secretary of General Affairs. The people would understand Roosevelt was clearly unwell. And if the people didn't, the organization would run a propaganda campaign. They were helpers, not usurpers. And what's more, the cabal wanted Smedley Butler to head the movement. He also mentioned he was planning to contact James Van Zandt, a veteran, a future Republican politician, and, as it turns out, sorry I didn't mention him in episode one, the man who invited Butler to speak to the Bonus Army at the very start of this tale. Maguire was sure Butler's friend would want a part of all this. Smedley made it clear he had no intentions of carrying out a putsch. McGuire told him he wouldn't need to. Roosevelt would be so grateful for the help he'd hand the reins over. He'd been grooming General Hugh Johnson for such a role anyway, but he was finding the man far too indiscreet. FDR planned to fire him in the coming days. Now it turns out FDR did, in fact, fire Johnson soon after this conversation. And the man was loose-lipped. He took a job as a newspaper columnist, writing a slew of anti-Roosevelt hit pieces. But how would one fund such a plot? Maguire replied they now had access to $3 million. He could get hold of $300 million if needed. The mogul J.P. Morgan was involved, as was Al Smith, yet another former Democratic Party presidential candidate, and a former mayor of New York to boot. Smith was now an associate of the powerful DuPont family. Now, this really shocked Butler. Smith was one of Roosevelt's guys. McGuire claimed Smith would soon break from the Roosevelt camp via an angry invective in the newspapers. And again, he did so soon after. What's more, if Butler chose to turn him down, well, he was their top pick in spite of J.P. Morgan lobbying for another contender. But he was not their only option. Their second choice, according to Maguire, was sure to back them. J.P. Morgan had rallied hard for General Douglas MacArthur. They expected MacArthur could be bought. Not least of all as his father-in-law, Edward Statesbury, was involved in their group. Hanford McNider, a former leader of the American Legion, was a distant third choice. Maguire was going down to Miami. He planned to catch up with Butler once he returned. The meeting was over. Right, quick break, we'll be back in a minute. The following month, the American Liberty League, an anti-Roosevelt coalition of captains of business, bankers, and former politicians launched with a suspiciously familiar roster of members. Irene DuPont, J.P. Morgan, Al Smith, Maguire's own boss, a man named Colonel Grayson Murphy, and of course the sewing machine heir, Robert Sterling Clark. Its list of patrons included the families behind Pittsburgh Plate Glass, Andrew W. Mellon Associates, Rockefeller Associates, General Motors, and Sun Oil. J. Howard Pugh, who later co-founded the John Birch Society, was yet another name. Al Smith and his buddy, John J. Raskob, a former Democratic Party member and businessman were directors of the League. They quickly branded Roosevelt's New Deal, Jewish Communism, stating their opposition. In the South, a Southern Committee to uphold the Constitution, a suspiciously similarly-minded group, but with a focus on KKK ideology, arose at exactly the same time. A lot of things were suddenly happening as predicted. Butler got on the phone to warn James Van Zandt, a cabal of fascist businessmen, would soon be in touch with him. Van Zandt took heed. Next, he considered traveling to Washington, D.C. to report the plotters. But the more he thought about it, the more convinced he was. The authorities would laugh him out of the building. Now, in part one, I glossed over the fact that Butler was briefly police chief of Philadelphia. That's quite a story in itself. The Philadelphia police were notoriously corrupt, in bed with gangsters and bootleggers. Butler was brought in to enforce prohibition, which he soon came to view as a stupid law in need of repeal. He cleaned up much of the corruption. He was also, as Foucault's best boomerangs only can be, a guy who brought in a militaristic style to policing, developed in Nicaragua and Haiti from which a through line can be drawn directly to some of the worst aspects of American policing to this day. I left this out because I wanted you to like this man. We can admit he has a complex legacy, right? Well, anyway, while in Philadelphia, he made several friends in the media. He approached his friend, Tom O'Neill, an editor for the Philadelphia Record. O'Neill was shocked at the plot and only too happy to lend him the talents of investigative reporter Paul Comley French. French started off by going through Butler's own background with a fine-toothed comb. If the general was plotting to blackmail America's moguls, he would ferret it out. They needed conclusive proof Smedley Butler was above board. In the meantime, Butler continued to speak on behalf of the soldiers. The midterm elections came and went. The American Liberty League did their best to hobble Roosevelt's supporters, to little effect. The Democratic Party won by a landslide. Something else was happening in Washington, D.C. A reporter named John L. Spivak, who specialized in uncovering American fascists, anti-Semites, racist Southern sheriffs, and other undesirables, caught wind of a group of fascist businessmen plotting to take over the White House. John McCormick and Samuel Dickstein of the McCormick-Dickstein Committee, subsidiary of the House on american Activities Committee, also picked up on this plot. They went straight to Smedley Butler to ask him what he knew. He freely told them everything he knew. On November 20, 1934, Butler met with the McCormick-Dickstein Committee, giving a full rundown of the wooing of the American Liberty League. At the same time, an article by Paul Comley French ran in a New York Post and Philadelphia record. Later that day, French too gave evidence. He'd not just done his homework on Butler, but had also met with Maguire himself on September 13th, 1934. He met with him as Butler's personal secretary. Maguire was rather more candid with French, stating they needed a man on a white horse to lead the coup. That man could only be Butler. They planned to arm a militia of half a million former soldiers through the connections of the Remington Arms Company, paying them directly by DuPont. The money for the militia's wages would be doled out from a National City bank account by himself and attorney for JP Morgan, John W. Davis. French also mentioned Maguire pursued two former leaders of the American Legion who had pledged their support for the Putsch. Once successful, they planned to register all persons in the USA in an effort to stop a lot of these communists. They planned to tackle unemployment by rounding up all the unemployed in concentration camps and forcing them into slavery. Later again that day, Maguire was called in and grilled. He denied everything. Now he was a man on a rather healthy $150 a week, a little over $3,000 a week adjusted for inflation to 2022. But he couldn't explain away over $30,000 he'd spent in recent months. And that figure would only grow. The committee concluded their initial proceedings, finding it likely several of the USA's wealthiest citizens were plotting to instigate a coup. They determined to dig further. The moguls denied this, of course, and with the support of their powerful media connections, publicly branded Smedley Butler a fantasist and a lunatic. His testimony, they claimed, was a publicity stunt. Plans were made to subpoena 16 people for further information. The case was referred to the Attorney General. Maguire was called back and again questioned. His testimony was contradictory, showing him up as a liar. Former leaders of the American Legion were called in, as was James Van Zant, who corroborated Butler's testimony. And further information emerged. If Smedley Butler had refused them, another potential man on a white horse was Colonel Theodore Roosevelt Jr., Theodore was shocked anyone would think he'd ever usurp his fourth cousin. Robert Sterling Clark was rather conveniently, over in Paris, and happy to refute Butler's accusations. When he eventually got home. But then on november 26, the committee released the statement. It saw no reason for calling in a raft of business moguls or generals. Their reason for testimony against them was largely hearsay. The hearings dragged on till January. All the while corporate media did all they could to discredit Butler. Eventually, Clark sent his lawyer to speak on his behalf. The lawyer's answers as to why Maguire was given a verified sum of $75,000 by Clark was completely unconvincing. In January 1935, Butler took to the airwaves on WCAW Philadelphia to tell his story to the American people directly. At the end of the month, Dickstein stated that the investigation would go further. But then the committee released their findings on February 15, 1935. They found absolutely unquestionably there had been a plot to overthrow the president. And the newspapers buried the story. And then no one chose to take further action. Maguire, Clark, former presidential candidates, business moguls, bankers, old soldiers. They were all let off the hook. Now, even given much of the evidence was hearsay, at the very least, they could have prosecuted Maguire for perjury. His denials around large sums of money were clearly false. But even he walked. Now, if I guess there is any justice in this case, it may be that Maguire would be dead within months. Aged just 37, of a sudden case of pneumonia. The American Liberty League continued to fund a number of hostile fascist organizations till they disbanded in 1940. Roosevelt found the mainstream press increasingly hostile to him. He took to the radio as Smedley Butler had. His fireside chats were extremely popular with the American people. Now for all of the animosity of the super rich, they enjoyed a period of unprecedented wealth under New Deal politics all the way right up to the mid-1970s. And yes, they paid levels of tax many would now consider unbelievable. They were earning in excess of $200,000 a year, about $2.4 million today. 94 cents in every dollar over $200,000 went to the taxman. But the great acceleration this tax money fed made for a golden age of capitalism. As the American economy boomed like never before and the world moved at a pace like never seen before every which way imaginable wealth technology life expectancy living standards education also infuriatingly oil consumption pollution deforestation and the biggie greenhouse gas production as for our hero Smedley Darlington Butler, one-time muscle man for big business, turned peace campaigner. One-time oppressor of other nations in the name of American capitalism, turned America's staunchest defender of democracy. He died of cancer, aged only 58, on July 21st, 1940. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice, share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks time for more tales of history and imagination.